The Alabama Crops Report Podcast, your trusted information source for Alabama agriculture. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Alabama Crops Report Podcast. Scott Graham and Amanda Shear here today. Amanda, how's it going? It's going pretty well. We're recording as of June 21st and we've definitely had a wet season so far. So definitely curious to see how this progresses disease-wise for me as a plant pathologist and how it impacts insects here in Alabama. Um, but I hear we have some interesting guests on today. It's kind of a treat for our listeners, Scott. Yeah, we do. So we've, we've got uh, some, some colleagues and friends from the University of Hawaii uh, that, that are on with us today. So we're excited to have them on. We've got a big group of folks, but I think we're going to be able to go through it. Uh, so I'll just run through a couple of uh, names and introductions real quick. First, we have Dr. Kun Wei Wang from, uh, from Hawaii. Uh, a couple of graduate students, Landon Wong, Melanie Pitiki and Nico Sylvester. Uh, and then we've also got Auburn's own Dr. Uh, Kathy Lawrence and a graduate student here at Auburn, uh, Claire Schomer as well. So, hey, everybody, welcome to the uh, podcast. Good to be with you all. All right. So let's start just real quick. Uh, so I guess I should mention this is actually a, a USDA funded project that we're going to talk about today, uh, focusing on organic production of sweet potatoes. Uh, so Kathy or Kunway, if one of y'all would like to take just a second and and kind of tell us how this joint came between Auburn and the uh, University of Hawaii. Kunway, go ahead. Okay, so hi. Uh, so yeah, we are working together because uh, both Alabama and, uh, and uh, Hawaii, we kind of have a small-scale sweet potato production, uh, and we have a specialty type of uh, sweet potato produced in Hawaii. So mostly we are growing Okinawa sweet potato, uh, but Alabama has other variety. Uh, we are both challenged by uh, lots of new invasive species, and it's sweet potato is one of the most important vegetable crop produced here. And so, sweet potato is challenged by multiple pests and pathogens, and we are seeing a decline in the soil health. They also lead to more decline in the crop yield. And so, we thought we want to particularly address some problem challenged by organic farmers that like to grow sweet potato here. Thank you. That's that's interesting. Such a, a neat neat uh collaboration there. And I don't know, uh, Kathy, if you or Claire want to talk from an Alabama perspective for our listeners. What are some of our more challenging uh, pests that we deal with? On the nematode side in Alabama, we have a lot of root knot nematodes that attack those poor old sweet potatoes. We also have some reniform, which will, but in our area it's more root knot. And Kunway has the reniform that really attacks them in Hawaii. Now, Claire, you can tell them about all the insects that we ran into. Yeah, so on the insect side, um, there's a lot of things that like to eat our sweet potatoes, including um, this complex that we call the WDS complex, which is comprised of wireworms, diabrotica, um, which is like flea beetles, um, and cystina. So it's basically like the larval stages of those pests like to eat our sweet potatoes when they're in the soil. And soil pests are certainly can be a, uh, a challenge to uh, control, uh, particularly when you think about the focus of this grant is, is organic uh, production on top of that. So that, uh, that, that definitely is something that we need some, some research and answers on. You know, we don't really have a lot of conventional uh, products, let alone organic products for control of those types of things. And in Hawaii, just to let you know, they found some sweet potato weevils that we don't really seem to have. So I know Landon there has been having a great time with his sweet potato weevils. 
Yeah. Yeah, Landon, would you like to, to update us a little bit on what you're seeing with sweet potato weevils in Hawaii? Uh, sure, but I think that you want me something to add on the previous question first. Okay. In Hawaii, besides the sweet potato weevil, the cyclas, formant carrots, we also have two other new invasive species that came in pretty recently. Uh, Rock sweet potato weevil, which is Glycyrus exodus, and West Indian sweet potato weevil, also born inside the roots of the sweet potato that will make the roots uh, unedible. So, yeah, so we have a slightly different type of, so we call this a typical legal complex between three of them, found a pretty challenging. So they have it much more, they have more complex where in our area, I think, Claire, we only found one sweet potato weevil. Yeah, we only found a few sweet potato weevils and we were trapping for them using pheromone traps throughout the entire season, but we only found maybe like four or five of them at harvest. Hopefully we'll keep it that way. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, so Landon, can, can you t- tell us a little bit about the sweet potato weevil from what you found and, and the challenges of controlling it? Uh, sure. So, so as Dr. Wong explained, we have Glossiris acellus, the rough sweet potato weevil, which dwells on the outside of the sweet potato. We have the West Indian sweet potato weevil, which is Eusethes uh, uh, postfatiatis, as well as Silas formicarius, the standard sweet potato, the common sweet potato weevil that we find in many different localities around the world. And while the latter two dwell inside the sweet potato, and the Glossiris acellus, the rough sweet potato weevil on the outside, they all dwell within the soil. So fortunately for us, they're approach to controlling them is fairly similar. We, so there are some challenges given that they're actually inside of the tuber. And so therefore, in terms of organic management, we need to have biopesticides that can actually go into the sweet potato. And some of the approaches that we have done are in regards to entomopathogenic nematodes and entomopathogenic fungus. So in terms of uh, biopesticides, we use, the, we use two species of entomopathogenic nematodes, Heterobetus indica and Styronomethelti. And in the lab, these have been shown to cause mortality at, of around 80% of the sweet potato weevils when tested in petri dishes, and those are the about 10 nematodes per larva, which is a very low dose. So this shows so there's a very high potential for these when applied into the field. And we also have been looking at entomopathogenic fungi, which in other studies have been shown to be very effective at controlling the sweet potato weevil as well. But we are also looking in particular at their ability to grow as an endophyte and how they may have and they may have beneficial properties for the overall growth of the sweet potato as well. So those are just some approaches that we've been using to organically manage the sweet potato weevil and benefit, and benefit the sweet potatoes. That's, that's uh, interesting stuff there. Just for our, our listeners' sake, an enemopathogenic nematode is just simply a nematode that instead of going after the sweet potatoes, they go after the insects uh, instead. That's correct. That's correct. And in Hawaii, they have to grow their own. But here in the United States, we can buy them. So, so, so Claire has bought several different species and we've watered them in in the field. So if anybody's interested in getting some here, we can just order them online and they'll ship them to you and, and away you go. 
Kathy, one of the things that you mentioned that I thought was interesting is that, you know, in Hawaii, they have more of the reniform nematode, whereas in Alabama, we have more of the root, not nematode. Um, and Kunwei, you can also chime in on this, but how can producers, how do they currently manage those two pests? And where do you think the biggest need is in terms of management, in terms of lack of knowledge for producers? Yeah, sure. So, quite a few superhero farmers that are in that has more experience, they will rotate their field from one side to another, not necessarily using cover crop. Uh, a few of them start using sunhem as a cover crop because sunhem produces a aerophatic compound that can surprise reniform and root knot nematodes, and then they will rotate it. Uh, but there are actually many other cover crops that has aerophatic effect against both reniform and root knot nematodes. And so in this project, we are testing some of them, including sorghum, uh, velvet bean is another good potential tropical uh, cover crop that has suppressive effects against nematode as well as marigold. But so we did a trial comparing all these four cover crops together. <clears throat> we find that uh, irrigation needs is another issue that the reason why many of our growers doesn't want to uh, adopt cover cropping if they don't want to spend so much irrigation for two or three months uh, without a cash crop. And we find that out of this four cover crop, rubber beans seems to be the one that you can just irrigate for the first two to four weeks and you stop irrigation. The biomass production is similar to if you were to water them every week until uh, cover crop termination. So we also like this as uh, promote soil health while growing this different tropical cover crop uh, that can increase soil carbon content. And uh, so some of the results that uh, Melanie can share with you is the interest in increasing soil carbon. Uh, so I'll let Melanie go with that. All right, so um, all the, from all the cover crops that we have tested so far, I turned out that velvet bean seemed to be a uh, versatile cover crop that is not only drought tolerant, as mentioned by Dr. Wayne, from uh, two weeks, eight weeks um, irrigation timing. And so it produces an uh, abundant biomass that is about nine, uh, nine times per acre within two and a half months of growth. And this led to it producing a highest total carbon content in the soil out of the other three uh, cover crops that were also tested in this trial. And velvet bean also accumulated the highest uh, ammonia nitrogen in the soil, which is a form of nitrogen that is available for plant uptake and that is less likely to leach in high-clay soils as in uh, the office soil conditions that we have in our in. So uh, velvet bean is one of the crops that we would want to focus more on uh, in our future uh, experiments. And in Alabama, if we grow sun hemp or velvet bean, it's a summertime, so it's sweet potato or the cover crop. So Claire's been focusing here on the winter cover crops, if you want to tell them, Claire, your best winter cover crops. Sure. So actually, our best winter cover crop was a mix of cover crops. Um, it was Elden rye, crimson clover, daikon radish, and wheat. And that actually resulted in a big yield benefit. We saw that the yield um, following using that cover crop mix 
was over 8,000 pounds per acre, which was a 2,000 pound per acre increase over the fallow, which is pretty impressive. We think that's because the mix is kind of synergistic with the clovers um, increasing that soil nitrogen and then our other cover crops like the rye and the radish reducing our nematode populations. So that's a pretty significant yield bump there. Claire, this might be a good question for you. Um, you know, for our listeners, why why would you look at a cover crop? Is it mainly as they're not a good host for the nematodes? Do you want to talk a little bit about their host range and how that impacts management decisions? Sure. If you're a grower that has nematode problems, it's really important to take that into consideration when you're selecting a cover crop. Because if you select a cover crop that is a host to the nematode that you have, you could be increasing your populations and creating bigger problems for your following season. But if you select a cover crop that's not a host, um, you could have you could have the opportunity to reduce that nematode reproduction and leading to um, lower populations for your cash crop or sweet potato season. One additional kind of follow up question to that, you know, just coming from row crops, uh, you know, in cotton and peanuts, uh, where I do a lot of my research. Producers will utilize not only cover crops, but also crop rotation, you know, to manage the peanut root, not nematode, they'll rotate to cotton. Um, are there any good crop rotation partners that producers can utilize in Alabama for sweet potatoes? That is more difficult because with our root, not nematode, they could try to go to peanuts and that's a sandy soil and that would help. But if they've got the southern root, not incognita, that's not, you know, that's going to be those issues. They have to go into that cotton would be it. So they do have options of cotton or peanut, but they need to know which root knot they have to be able to do that. So over here in uh, Hawaii, some farmers are actually rotating sweet potato with corn. Um, that is mainly when they don't have too much uh, root knot problem because corn is a non-host for any corn. But eventually, they still build up their root knot nematode population, and then they have to switch side for their crop rotation. That's true. Our corn is a great cover crop for reniform fields, but not for root knot. So we, we've talked about using EPNs or endopathogenic nematodes. We've talked about cover crops. Uh, what else? I, I know we're looking at some, uh, I guess, biological or organic pesticides as well to try to help. Any Anything we all talk about with that? In Alabama, we added Majestine. We used a three-way mix of three species of endopathogenic nematodes, the biological product, Magistine. And then we also used a like myco-insecticide or fungal insecticide called Bavaria bassiana. But pretty much we saw that it did not reduce insect damage incidents um, compared to the untreated plots. So we would suggest farmers save their money on those products. So over here in Hawaii, previously we tried out uh, just to add new products. Uh, one product is Next. Um, we can suppress some certain insect pests in the soil, but we find that if we inject the moldex uh, into the irrigation drip line monthly, uh, following after previous cover crop of sand ham or velvet bean, we also see that a reduction in the rainfall nematode problem, uh, in part because rainfall nematode is more challenging nematode to control because under unfavorable conditions, they will survive in an antibiotic stage. But by planting sunhand, we will force the reniform nematode to come out from their survival stage. And then following by mean oil product uh, fertigation or chemigation, 
we can suppress the warming form of the rainfall nematode much easier than if we if we didn't time the sunlight. So integrated pest management approach can also be an effective way to control rainfall nematodes. Thank you. This has been uh, been great information. It's been pretty interesting to to hear about the great collaboration between these two universities and and the work we're doing. Is there anything else we need to uh, to cover? Anything we missed that y'all'd like to uh, bring up or talk about? We're doing it again this year, so we'll see if our results turn out the same. I, I did want to kind of add on to the cover cropping with um, with Melanie's one. One of the particular one of the interesting finds that we found with our cover cropping uh, studies is that with velvet bean as well as the sorghum, we find that, or sorry, contact, we find that the incidence of metarizium and Bavaria infection actually increase when we look at the soil. And so this may be a notable enhancement, especially in terms of having a naturally occurring uh, uh, pressure against our pests that we're trying to control. Interesting. Yeah, that, you know, Bavaria bassiana anyway is one that we're familiar with over here with it. It does a good job of controlling some above ground pests like uh, kudzu bugs and things like that in our soybeans. So it'd be, it'd be great if we could kind of create an environment to where it's it's more present for when it's not following the insects, but it's kind of there when the insects show up. For sure. And we didn't really see that benefit here um, in our Alabama plots this year. But we applied that product via like a foliar spray. So this year we're going to apply it using a watering can or more of like a drench treatment to hopefully get that product more into the soil, which is where those problematic pests are in our sweet potatoes. Hi, So um, also in addition to what Lennon said, our preliminary data suggested velvet bean uh, residues also increase the frequency of uh, as baiting uh, one of the entomopathogenic fungi, metarhizium, in the soil. So we use wax home gates to uh, bury them in the soil to trap the fungi, which is also a good fungi. And so out of the uh, treated um, cattle crops, velvet bean increased um, the colonization of metarhizium from the soil. And so um, further work will be done on that. And in addition to what Jen said, Bavaria Bastiana that was applied um, did not reduce best manage, uh, best damage on the people complex that we had. So focusing on well-being and on uh, the use of mentorism would be one approach that we will uh, focus more on. Um, and then uh, something I'd like to add is uh, our lab working with uh, Dr. Sipes, we're currently developing a application system for EPNs, particularly for Cyanomic LCI and Heterophyta syndica. We're using waxworm larvae and mealworm larvae that have been previously infected. So waxworm are infecting with H. indica and then with mealworms we're infecting with Cyanomic LCI. And then we're taking the cadavers uh, 40 hours after infection, so after they pass, and then we're placing them into uh, glass desiccators and filling that with a saturated solution of potassium chloride. And what that does is that it reduces the relative humidity within the glass desiccator to about 85%, and we hold that for about two weeks. And the purpose of this is that it dries down cadavers because when you're trying to use the cadavers fresh or um, just kind of sitting in room temperature after two weeks, they fall apart really easily. They're 
they can easily bust open and that kind of defeats the purpose of using cadavers, which is to protect the EPMs from uh, desiccating conditions, like direct desiccating conditions, uh, UV radiation, which can lower the, uh, the effectiveness of EPMs. Since most EPMs are applied in a spray or liquid application, you're directly um, exposing them to desiccating conditions and UV radiation. So what we're trying to do is to extend the shelf life of bombs so that growers here in the state of Hawaii can uh, essentially hold onto them for long term and they're easier to handle so they don't end up, you know, breaking up in your hand when you're applying them to the field. That's very interesting, Miko. I mean, the that anyone that's worked with biologicals or anything, especially in an organic production as well, know that getting those out in the environment is sometimes the biggest challenge. They'll work very well, you know, in vitro or in controlled conditions, but then when they get to the field, that's probably the biggest challenge. So I'm really curious to see what you guys find with that. That's really interesting, you know, approach to do it. I hadn't heard of that before. Okay, thank you. And uh, we should be getting data um, towards the end of July. Um, I feel this game close to harvesting. So we've uh, done those applications. And uh, I can't, we can't say credit for the use of cadavers. Uh, Dr. Shapiro Alon back in 2012 did develop that method, but we are building on the method of desiccation for longer shelf life. All right. Awesome. Well, that, that'll be, we'll be looking for that. So, all right. Well, we appreciate y'all's time uh, today. Uh, again, I just very, think very interesting. Glad y'all were able to come on and kind of give this update here on Again, I, I think it's a very unique collaboration, uh, both in terms of the project and between our two universities. Uh, again, thank you all, and, and we'll uh, take a second just to thank our listeners uh, for tuning in. If anybody ever has any uh, questions or comments, please don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. The Alabama Crops Report podcast is a production of the Alabama Cooperative Extension System and is sponsored by Alabama Ag Credit.